But the relationship before us today as we look at Luke chapter 7 was an unusual one for a lot of different reasons. There was a satyrian, and we're going to talk about who he was and, and his servant. His servant, we don't know if it was a male or female, a man or a woman. We don't know. It isn't told us. It was most assuredly not a Roman because Romans weren't slaves and servants. Probably it was not a Jew because Jews didn't make good servants to an occupying Roman army. This servant was most likely a Greek from northern Africa, but whoever this was, they had formed a bond with this centurion that was special and close. So much so that when this servant became sick and paralyzed, he or she had the heart of the centurion so much that he made a trip to Jesus Christ. Now think about the centurion. The Roman army was broken up into legions of 6,000 men. Of those 6,000 men, there were 60 centuries within that legion of 100 men in each century. A centurion was a commander over that century, a hundred men. He was literally the backbone of the Roman army. He was the drill sergeant. He was lieutenant on the front line. Almost every occasion that we see in the New Testament of a centurion is given in a positive light. The man that stood at the cross when Jesus died and said, Behold, this this must be the Son of God, was a centurion. Uh, A centurion rescued Paul from an angry mob in Jerusalem. These were strong, courageous men who had been on the battlefield for most likely years to gain that stature. They had seen men die. They had watched men suffer. But this centurion had not allowed the battlefield to take his heart away from him. That's quite an achievement, by the way. Few, if any of us in here, have ever faced battlefield experience. But it leaves most empty and cold, but not this man. He cared about his servant enough to go see Jesus Christ. He had a heart still, and that heart was attracted in a very unusual way to his servant. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I want you to look uh, at this ongoing story. Now this, the events that we're going to look at in Matthew 7 most likely occurred all on one day. All on one day. At the end of this segment in chapter 8 verse 14, it says that it was eventide. It was the evening. So the day began... At the Sermon on the Mount, he finishes that. He comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, and as last week we saw, he met a leper. And the purity of Jesus Christ, rather than the leprosy going toward Jesus, actually the purity of Christ went toward the leper. There's that touch. I just, I can't get over it. I've been thinking about it all week long. There's that touch where the leprosy is not transferred to Jesus. 
the purity of Jesus is transfused into the leper. I can't get over that because that's what happened to me years ago. That's what happened to you when you got saved. If you're born again, you are pure as Jesus Christ. So here's this leper that comes and he touches him. Bad start to the ministry. Bad start to the ministry because the disciples are looking at him and go, we don't touch lepers. Jesus is showing him what kind of savior this is. The second thing is a Roman, a Gentile comes to Jesus. Well, we Jews don't talk to Romans. We don't, in fact, we hate Romans. We don't talk to Gentiles. But here he comes through the crowd and they all with open mouths watch this transaction go on. Look at chapter 8. Look down at verse 5. So he enters into Capernaum. And Capernaum was not a big city. It was a small fishing village on the lake of Galilee. Small, not too much of a walk from the Sermon on the Mount. He enters into Capernaum. A centurion came forward to him. Now, this is a military man. Notice the the wording there. I I love the wording of this because it sounds like a, a military approach. He came forward to him. You know, the last week, the leopard came to him, but a military man would march. And the centurion comes forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. And he's suffering greatly. Don't miss that. These are all pictures of sin. These three first touches of Jesus Christ. The first is a leper, which is a picture of of infection and disease and and rotting of sin in our lives before we came to Christ. Here is a paralyzed man, and we all were paralyzed before we came to Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Spiritually, we couldn't reach out to him. He had to first reach out to us. We couldn't go to where he was. He came to where we were. We didn't call on him first. He called on us to wake us up to our need for him. We were paralyzed. No one gets to heaven and says, hey, I chose him. You did choose him, but he first chose you. We've already started the Calvinism, Armenianism talk for next week. (laughs) That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday night here at the church. But here's a man paralyzed, or a woman paralyzed, and he or she is suffering greatly. Let's go on in the story. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Notice the, not only the courage, but the confidence. He didn't say, I'll come over and see what I can do. That's what we say to one another when something's broke around the house. We call our buddy and we say, well, let me come over and see what you got. Jesus doesn't say, let me come see what you got what I can do. He knows what he can do. I will come and I will heal him. So the offer is made to interrupt whatever he's doing in Capernaum, walk over to the centurion and go into a Gentile's house. You got to see how shocked the disciples are at this point. They can't believe this kind of stuff's going on. If you're going to start your ministry, go down to Jerusalem. Do a tent revival outside the city wall. Go to where the spectacular is. Go to where all the names are thrown around. John and I went to the TPC practice round last Tuesday. And uh, I'm I'm a flora and fauna guy, so I just love the landscape. 
as much as watching the golfers. And I uh, got to watch Tiger tee off, great thrill. Uh, I took a picture with him and Benny. Benny has no idea what he was looking at at that point, but someday he will. You know, you got the TPC out in Sawgrass, and then you got Cecil Pines out here on the west side. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So rather than Jesus going out to the TPC and starting his golf experience, he goes to the Cecil Pines. No one's out there. No one cares. Instead of going to Jerusalem where it's all impressive, he's up in Galilee and of all places, Capernaum on, in a village of fishing of all things. Fishermen. What do they know? Well, they're working men like you and I and that's who Jesus went to. We got some guys who fish here. Aren't you glad he fished for you? So in Capernaum, he offers to go to the house and notice what the centurion, a man of honor and a man who understands the Jewish mindset, says. But the centurion replied, Laura, I am not worthy to have... Whoa. Stop there. This is a Roman officer of the most powerful empire in the world at this point. The backbone of the Roman And he looks at a Jewish carpenter and he knows he's looking at something and someone a whole lot more than just a Jew. Got it? I am not worthy to have you under my roof. I partly believe also, that was true what he said and I believe he believed it, but I also think he was giving Jesus an out. And understanding that it's very unpopular for you to come to my house, and some of your men might not understand, so I'm giving you an out at this point. I think maybe that might have been on his mind also. Then he says, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he gives him an understanding of authority. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. Now, just a word about authority, and I'm just going to say it because it just sits there, and I just want to say it. No man has, has qualifies himself to be an authority over anyone until he is an authority under someone else. It's a rule of life. The very best bosses and the very best commanders and the very best those who lead understand that there is authority above them. And until we all are submissive to the authority over top of us, we cannot lead anyone under us. I just wanted to throw that in there because it's there. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I have authority with my word to command men. When Jesus heard this, this is the first time he's marveled. He marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you that no one in Israel, with truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Please don't miss the context of the moment and who's listening, and who's around. He's surrounded by his fellow Jews. 
okay? The centurion is already unpopular to, to interrupt their Jewish time here. The disciples that he chose are there. He excludes them. Do you understand the eyebrows that are raised, the hair on the back of the neck that may spring up with these statements? I haven't found anybody in the entire country like you. Wow. And then he brings a picture that I want you to understand because it's, it just reflects on the Jewish mindset. He marveled and said to those who follow him, truly I tell you that no one in Israel, no, that with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now he's going to go on and we're going to go on in the passage, but I want you to stop and, and see this. This is Jewish teaching and Jesus embraced it. This is a truth that's coming that at the end of the age, there's going to be a great festival and feast. There's going to be a table set like no table has ever been set before. Now what the Jew taught was that only the Jew would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's it. The Gentiles, you and I, will be cast out into outer darkness Basically, Jesus, you're wasting your time with this centurion because he's not going to make it in the end after all anyway. Who doesn't like to eat? Who doesn't like to see a beautiful table spread? Now, I don't know what your favorite table is. I I had a meal in Los Angeles one time uh, at a restaurant. It was a Thai restaurant, most incredible plate of food I ever ate. Think back to a meal that you've ate, a table that's been set, and what's coming pales in, in contrast. And three that are going to sit there with everybody else is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why these three? Because these are the three Jewish patriarchs. They picture for us, listen carefully, they picture for us God. Abraham pictures the father. Isaac pictures the son. Jacob pictures the Holy Spirit. Now those three men will actually be there. I believe in this end age when this festival and this feast is thrown, we will see these men. But for us spiritually, they are the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture of God calling us to eat with him. But remember, if you're a Jew and you're sitting here, you think you're the only ones. Now notice what he says. He just, he doesn't care what he says. He's just going to tell the truth. And this is what he says. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. Right there, there's an uproar. Because nobody comes from the east and the west to come to this table. Only those in Israel. Have you ever asked yourself why not the south and the north, east and west? The earth has four directions, does it not? Why just two instead of four? 
when the Jew and God looked at the planet spiritually, there is only two directions because they come out from the center of all the world, which is Israel. The center of the world is not America. It's not. The center of all the world to this day is the nation of Israel. Split the world right by Israel. You go west, you go east. There's just two directions. Two is the number for diversity and unity in diversity. Two is the biblical number for unity within diversity. How do we know that? Because when you get married, the two shall become one. The diversity of all the trees in the world, but there's only one unifying tree. There's maples and oaks and pines, but there's only one category. It's called a tree. Spiritually, this east and west is the idea that all those in the west and all those in the east are diverse in a thousand ways. And yet spiritually, when we come to this table, we are one. That is it. Now, there is a north and a south. There is a north and a south. Take that away. But it's, it's in relation to the planet, not spiritually. By the way, we're in the west. You know that. We're west. I don't care if you're on the east coast of America. You're in the west. The east is the orient. And God says, I'm calling them from the east, and I'm calling them from the west. And right at that point, every Jew sitting there thinking, that's not right. But aren't you glad it is right? Because I live in the West. You're in the West. So take a look at it. Many shall come from East and West and shall serve the Jews. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll pass on that. You know, they'll, they'll be servants at the table. They'll, they'll, they'll bring the food for us Jews. Notice what he says. They will recline at table. When you recline at table, you are an equal sharer of that table. You're not serving that table. You're sitting and being served. Isn't that beautiful? We sit at this table equal to the Jew. But Jesus doesn't stop there. If you think he's ruffled the feathers as of yet, watch this. While the sons of the kingdom, who is that? That's the Jews. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. Wow. They're all thinking, we have made a real mistake following this guy. Maybe some of them. Those who think they're going to be there are not going to be there. Those who claim they're heaven because they're a good person, those who claim to be Christian without being born again of the Spirit of God, who think they're going to make it, are not. The best question to ask the lost or anybody is when you die, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? That's not the best. That's a good question to start with. But listen to their answer. Because any other answer other than I bowed my knees to Jesus Christ and he saved me from my sin 
lets you know they're not going to be in the kingdom. And I find it beneficial to look them in the eyes and love and say, based on your answer, you're not going to heaven. I have good success with that with folks. Many of them get saved. Take a look back at the verse. Verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go. I love this because he doesn't tell the centurion this until after he gives his little speech. He could have sent the centurion off and then gave this little diatribe, these few verses. He wants the man to hear it. He wants you to hear it. To the centurion, he said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. I love this. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Wow. I think we're going to save Peter's mother-in-law for next week. Shall we save Peter's mother-in-law for next week or shall we go on? Okay, all right. I'll be quick. See, you had a chance to close the service out. Yeah, a lot of you are like, tell those people to shut up. Verse 14. And when Peter and, and when Jesus entered Entered, entered Peter's house. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. You got a leper who needs to be cleansed. You got a servant who's paralyzed. Now you got a mother-in-law who's burning up with fever. All pictures of sin. Notice verse 16, and he touched her. There's something missing between 14 and 50. Nobody asked him to do that. The mother-in-law didn't ask for healing. Peter didn't take him in. You know, I I have no idea how Peter felt about his mother-in-law. Everybody loves their mother-in-law, right? Amen. I love my mother-in-law. We're not told. All we're told is the woman lay in the bed with a fever. Now, we know what kind of woman it is because of her response the moment she got healed. And he touched her and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. She had a servant's heart. She couldn't serve because she was sick. She got healed and the first response was to do something. Now I speak to some of you who have a servant's heart. And it's very difficult for for you to allow other people to do things for you. Because you want to do things for them. This is this is. This is that kind of woman. When she got healed, she started making the cakes, making bread. And we close with the picture at the end of this day that even time they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed, notice, All who were sick. Not some who were sick. All who were sick. He cast out many demons. Verse 17, Matthew includes the verse out of Isaiah 53. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Notice, he took our illnesses 
and bore our diseases. Okay. So, we're done with the text, but I want to talk to you about this particular verse out of Isaiah. I want to talk to you about healing. There's an awful lot, and this will close out our service. There's a lot of bad preaching and teaching about this particular topic. And I want to suggest to you some thoughts. There are those who say that it is never God's will for you to be sick. There are those who teach that. And they will use that particular verse of Jesus' earthly ministry to, to back that up. The problem with that teaching is we run into a fellow named the Apostle Paul who had a thorn in his flesh, a sickness, most likely an eye disease that caused penetrating, incredible headaches. He asked the Lord three times, will you take that away? And you who know your Bibles know his response to Paul. No. My grace is sufficient for you. The reason he allowed the thorn to stay in Paul was to humble him because of the revelation that he had in heaven so that Paul would, he used the sickness of Paul for his glory and his purposes. There are times God does heal and when he does, he heals completely. But there are times he says no. In this particular case, don't take this out of context saying that he always heals everyone. Because the conclusion I come to when I'm not healed is, must be something wrong with me. And that's what people are told. You don't believe enough. Well, that brings guilt and condemnation. How unfair is that? How wrong is that? There have been times I have laid in a dark room with a migraine headache and I have prayed for death because I have been hurting for days with it. And in that darkness, I was sincere. God, if you won't take this pain away, kill me. And yet the pain continued and finally subsided. There have been times in that dark room that my head was about to explode right there and I prayed to the Lord, Lord, by the way, it's always right to ask for healing. Always right. Ask. And I ask, and I'm telling you, instantaneous. It hasn't happened very often, I think two or three times. Instantaneously, I felt something in my sinuses. I felt little bubbles popping, and all of a sudden, within seconds, the pressure was gone. That's God. But it's also God if I stay in the darkness and I continue to hurt because he's teaching me something. He's creating a heart of compassion toward other people that hurt. So does God always heal? Yes, he does. Because the, hear me out, because in our minds we live on a linear A to Z mentality. We think it's A, we think it's Z. God works on an eternal basis. So when it says by his stripes we are healed physically, I say, amen, that's true, but it may not be in this life. We watched a dear brother in our church suffer for a year and a half, Jim Tootin, who we loved dearly, and we watched him go through it. As the farmers say, it was a tough road to hoe. And our hearts went out to he and Lillian, but I'm here to tell you by his stripes, 
Jim is healed this morning. He just had to wait. He runs, he laughs, he eats. He is completely healed. So we're not saying by his stripes, oh yeah, we're something. We're always healed. Sometimes in this life, sometimes not in this life, but always in eternity. Always. Please, don't buy into that lie that it's always his will for you to have perfect health because God is greater than that and sometimes he uses debilitating things but know that at the end, whatever you are going through, whatever your loved ones are going through, if you're a Christian today, you will be fully healed. And the few years, and I know it's excruciating for some of you, but those few years on the backdrop of eternity, when you get there and time is no more, those few years will be minuscule in your mind. And you have, when you look back and see what God has done, even through the sickness, Jesus loves us. God loves us. He never wastes pain. He never wastes sickness. There are times he, by his grace, lifts it. And there are times, by his grace, he gives us the strength to go through it. But know in the end, He is glorified, and in the end, we, like Jim, will dance and sing and run and laugh, and this life will be but a moment that we look back.